Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 10. Episode 10. I'm Katie. And I'm Kirby. I do. I feel like we start it the same way every time. We do. You're like, hey. I'm like, hey, guys. Uh, but I guess that's fine. Consistency yeah. well, is key. You got to know what the episode is. And I think it's yeah, nice I'm, to say I think guess we're saying all the right stuff. Yeah. And okay. it, I, our names, like if, if no one listens to it in order, which you don't have to listen to it in order. I think it might help. If you want to hear about our week, but if not, then don't listen to I it. I wonder in order. if people that don't know us have a hard time like distinguishing who's who by our voices. Like if they, I don't know, because mm. I always feel that way about other podcasts. Like they say their name, then I'm like, okay, she had that voice, she had that voice, but then I, it gets hard to tell the difference, and then I don't know who's who. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter now because it's just two names and two people usually. Yeah, we're insignificant. We're just bringing you the information you need to hear. We're the passage for the But now story. that you say it, I distinguish your voice over mine. Like, I I know it. Well, yeah, obviously. Yeah, That's just, why I said people that don't know That's us. all that matters is that I know. I yeah, know which one. <laughs> I know who I am. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. uh, we're sitting here in the rain. Yeah, so if you hear any high winds, it's because it's, like, currently a monsoon out. Yeah, I'm afraid your house might not withstand the winds. But it probably won't. That's okay. You got anything um, to tell the people about your week? I don't. Honestly, I'm boring. Let's admit it. I don't have anything to say. Well, this is backdated, because by the time you guys hear it, Easter will already have passed. Yeah. Happy Passover to anyone who celebrates, and happy Easter to anyone who celebrates. Yep. Happy Good But Friday, I'm excited right? for Easter. Yeah? Yeah, I am. Why? <laughs> oh, well, because it's like Scott's family tradition that um, you hide six oh, yes. packs. Yes. And it's like a $5 entry. So, like, instead of winning, like, a basket of candy, while I like candy, I do enjoy money. So you win money if you find your six pack first, which is pretty Wait, cool. Wait, that's sick. So it's not – I thought I knew about this, and I tell people about this because I think this is such a cool idea. I mean, I told my mom I wanted to do it, but she's like, that's too much work. Whatever. (laughs) So basically, instead of hiding Easter eggs for children, his family hides beer for adults. And, like, you have your little empty six-pack thing, and you find your beers, and you put it in there, and you get all six, which I think is awesome. But besides the beer, you get money, too, if you find them all first? Yeah, because everybody who brings a six-pack just puts in $5 towards a pot. And so last year, I was the winner. You were? I was. And that actually is the, I guess I'm really good at Easter egg hunts for the first time because my friend out in Idaho, her family, they just had a bunch of, it was like a mixed group of of people. It was like college kids and like just little kids. Mm -hmm. So they hid actual Easter eggs with candy, but then they also had $150, What the hell? Yeah, which the family just contributed. Like, we did not bring anything to the table. Wow. But they were hard-ass Easter eggs. Like, well, you have 100 bucks. You yeah. gotta believe it. That's like, wow. So it was actually, I felt like it was rigged because me and my roommate both won. And so we took home, like, the prize one and two, and we just put it together in, like, an alcohol pot. But <laughs> the I remember distinctly, because they gave clues because they were so hard to find. So they were, like, the adults would be like, check over on the east side and look down low or something something like ridiculously hard that you would never find but the one that my i was second place i think and my friend was first i think if i'm recalling it correctly because hers was literally hidden inside a fence post and um you know those like fake fence posts that are uh they're not like aluminum but they're uh they're like white and they're hollow. Yeah. But um, the top comes off of those and they yeah, literally yeah. placed it like inside. <laughs> like like all I... the way down? No, there's usually like a wooden oh. post inside and then the white part covers it. And yeah, then like yeah. the top of the white like goes on top. So the yeah. top just comes off. But like you would literally never find it if the clue wasn't like look inside the fence post. Yeah. So. Unless yeah. you're a professional Easter egg hunter. True. So, yeah, I can say I do enjoy Easter egg Damn, hunts. Damn, yeah, you've gone on some pretty good hunts. In like, my adult ages, yeah. I think my family needs to step it up. Yeah. I mean, you can, you're welcome to, to share the tips, you know. Yeah. Bring it out to the masses. Yeah, I'll tell my mom she should have hide a $100 bill in there. <laughs> She'll laugh at you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, my God. But anyway, yeah, so all your listeners out there, happy whatever you celebrate. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, I think that's enough. Yeah. Background. Um, I think we should just jump into the case. It's a big case. Yeah. Um, so this week, we'll be talking about a case that has become one of the most notorious cold cases in all of New England, involving the largest and most expensive search for a missing person that has ever taken place in the state of Massachusetts, still to this day. 
we're talking about the devastating case of the disappearance of Molly Bish. So Molly Ann Bish was born on August 2nd, 1984 in Detroit, Michigan. A couple years after she was born, her family ended up moving from Detroit to Warren, Mass. Warren is a small town in Worcester County, Mass, bordered by Ware, West Brookfield, Brookfield, Palmer, and Brimfield. It was the kind of town where neighbors uh, all knew each other, and the residents hardly ever locked their doors. The Bish family made the move from Detroit to Warren largely in hopes of escaping the inner city violence that they lived around in Michigan. In Warren, Molly's mother, Maggie Bish, was an elementary school teacher. Her father, John Bish, was a probation officer. Growing up, Molly was the youngest of three with an older brother and sister. She was athletic, playing soccer, basketball, and softball at the local high school, where she was also an honor roll student. She had blonde hair and blue eyes and weighed about 120 pounds. So at the age of 16, Molly got a job as a lifeguard at a local pond. Starting the summer of 2000, she was lifeguarding at Cummins Pond in Warren. Cummins Pond is a small man-made pond surrounded by woods, and it's like very secluded. She had lifeguarded there for only seven days when her and her family got some disturbing news. On the morning of June 27th of that year, Molly and her family were told that one of her friends, a teammate on her softball team, had been hit by a car while riding her bike to work. The girl was in critical condition with a very bad head injury. Given the news, Molly was quite sullen and worried, obviously. Um, We read that they were actually really good friends. However, she had a big day of work ahead of her that day. It was actually the first day of swimming lessons at the pond, so she kind of had to put her nerves aside and focus on the children for the day. Molly was running late that morning, so she was in quite a rush. Her mother, Maggie, drove with her um, in the car to the way, on her way to work. Molly was not yet 16 and a half, the age a person must be in Massachusetts to drive alone, Um, The two women stopped at a local convenience store to pick up water bottles, and surveillance footage shows Molly and her mother in the store making their purchase, and then it shows them leaving the store at 9.50 a.m. They then stopped at the Warren Police Department so Molly could pick up a two-way radio, which she was required to use while she was on duty. When they arrived at Commons Pond at 10 a.m., Maggie dropped her off, wished her a good day, and then headed off. As the first children began arriving for their swim lessons, Their parents quickly noticed that the lifeguard chair, equipped with a whistle and some personal belongings, was not staffed. At first, nothing was thought of. Um, The parents just assumed the lifeguard was running late or had snuck away to hang with friends or whatever. In fact, one of the moms even picked up the lifeguard whistle and assumed the position as they commenced the swimming lessons. Eventually, this mom decided to inform the head of the parks division, who was Molly's boss, that the lifeguard was not there and was neglecting her job. Her boss then informed the Warren police of the incident, and because this is a pretty big thing with insurance, and uh, if you're the head of Parks Division and your lifeguard's not there, it's pretty important that you figure out why. Yeah. So at 11.44 a.m., he made a call to the police using the lifeguard's two-way radio, saying that the assigned lifeguard was nowhere in sight. Initially, there was speculation that Molly had just walked off her post willingly. A woman named Sandra Woolworth came with her children and noticed there was no lifeguard, and she's the one who called the manager, um, who came down, and when they searched for Molly, he called the police, and police just assumed she was off with some friends or meeting up with her boyfriend. But after three hours and she still hadn't returned, they then decided to notify Molly's family. Around 1 p.m., Maggie received the phone call, and on the other end, a police officer was informing her that several people had reported that there was absolutely no lifeguard on duty at the pond that day. Being pretty alarmed, Maggie drove back to Cummins Pond in search of her daughter and found Molly's towel, flip-flops, chair, an open first aid kit, radio, and lunch, sitting all by the shore, but there was no sign of her girl. Police searched the shores of the pond and the surrounding woods, but they found nothing. Um, so immediately alarms were kind of going off in Maggie's head because, um, she knew her daughter. I mean, she was, this was one of her, well, her first like big important job and she'd only been there for a little while and she knew that Molly was really excited about starting this job and her and her other siblings had always been like very responsible being an honor roll student, having three jobs. She was just kind of saying it wasn't, wasn't like her to just kind of leave her stand she was kind of a worrisome girl. She would she would be afraid that she would lose her job or or she would get in trouble, especially after only being there for a few days. 
Meanwhile, the police were not all that concerned. Um, there was speculation that perhaps Molly was really upset about uh, learning of her friend's accident. So maybe she just got really upset and she ran off. They actually checked the hospital to see if the girl had any visitors that morning because maybe Molly had gone to check on her, but there was nothing. Molly's mother and sister immediately began doing their own detective work, getting in contact with all of Molly's friends to ask if they've heard from her. Molly's sister, Heather Bish, went to Molly's boyfriend's house. The boy was just waking up and they told him, or uh, he told them that he had not heard from Molly that morning, but he didn't really seem too concerned. Maggie, on the other hand, was kind of becoming hysterical. She was arguing with police, uh, saying, why would Molly up and leave without her shoes? That didn't make any sense. There's a lot of forest around the area. There's probably a lot of like pine cones and leaves and stuff that would hurt. So she just thought that the theory that she just up and left or went to meet friends or something just didn't make any sense. And then soon local police started to kind of agree with her and they decided to up their concern a level. So state police investigators were called in to the scene. Another theory that investigators initially had was that perhaps Molly had drowned, which kind of would explain why her shoes were still on the shore if she was going into the water barefoot. The Bish family knew deep down that this couldn't be true. Molly was a trained lifeguard, and she was a very able athlete. So they kind of thought it didn't make sense that she would just go off on her own and end up drowning. Nevertheless, a diving team was sent out to the pond to search through the murky waters. They searched the waters for many hours, and as the sun began to go down, lights were brought in so the search could continue. Several hours later, the diving team and search parties who were combing the surrounding woods came up empty-handed. They called it off for the night, planning a larger search party the next morning. Following her disappearance, Molly's friends and family created a website and email, ch email chain to circulate word of what happened, and in hopes of getting any information they could. Maggie, Molly's mother, soon remembered something, though. She thought she had seen a suspicious man the day before her daughter had gone missing. On that day, she had driven Molly to the pond for work just as she always had, when they pulled up to the parking lot, Maggie noticed a man parked in his car, smoking a cigarette. She walked Molly down to her spot on the pond, and when she returned, the man was still there in his car. She got back into her car and waited, watching to see what the man would do. She claims that this guy was just kind of glaring over at her, not saying anything, but just staring at her. And she kind of got this very, I guess, like mother's intuition kind of thing where she was just getting bad vibes from this dude, basically, and she was getting really nervous, and she didn't really want to leave her daughter there with this weird guy there. So he, she stayed in her car and waited, and then after several minutes, this sketchy guy just drove away. Admittedly, the man was not there the next day when Maggie dropped Molly off for work. However, a sand truck driver reported seeing him parked in the lot just minutes before the two women arrived. There was a sand company there that day dumping sand onto the beach because it's a man-made pond. And later that day, a worker noticed a similar white car to the man's parked at a nearby cemetery, which was connected to the pond by a path. Maggie informed the police about the man she saw who gave her these really uneasy feelings. She worked with a famous sketch artist, Jean or Jeanne Boylan, to create a composite of the man she had seen. He was described as having brown hair and a mustache, dark eyes, and approximately 50 years old. Once complete, Maggie swore this was the man that had taken her daughter. Following Molly's disappearance on July 27th, an extensive search immediately ensued. In fact, it would become the largest and most expensive search for a missing person that has, has ever taken place in Massachusetts to this day. Remember, we're talking about the missing daughter of a probation officer. Posters were hung all over the small town, lining storefronts and bulletin boards. The local residents were forming their own search parties to help. And there's a lot of wooded areas with multiple trails all over the area that just kind of branch out. So there's a lot of ground to be covered. Given that Molly's first aid kit was left open on the shore, police and the Bish family believed that someone had faked an injury. And while Molly was bending down to search the kit, she was taken. It would be e very easy for her abductor to take her away from the pond and travel through the wooded paths totally unnoticed. Police also made public the sketch of the man Maggie was suspicious of. They received hundreds of calls from people all over the country, and everyone knew someone who looked like the person in the sketch. 
After all, he was described as a middle-aged white man with dark hair and eyes. It cost the investigators a lot of time and money to follow up on these, you know, mostly empty leads. The DA even ordered a search of 125 white vehicles in the area because a suspicious man was seen last driving a white car. One of the first people that the police questioned was Molly's boyfriend, Steve. He had had a cut on his lip and was missing an eyebrow ring. Steve explained this by saying that when he got up out of bed, he hit his head on the bedroom door, thus cutting himself. But police found out that Steve had told his friends a completely different story and that it was actually a cold sore on his lip. They found that a little suspicious, and they also found it suspicious that Steve was not very willing to help. If you recall, at the beginning when they first went to him, he just kind of took the news in stride. It didn't really seem to faze him that, you know, they were looking for Molly Bish. But the Bish family didn't agree. They did not think a teenage boy could be responsible for this. But still skeptical, the police gave Steve a polygraph test. The boy passed and was eliminated as a suspect. The extensive searches and interviews were sadly to no avail. No signs of a body or struggle or any evidence at all was found. The state police were practically living in the local Warren police station, working endlessly on this case, eventually moved out, continued their work from their Worcester office, and it seemed that Molly had vanished without a trace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the craziest parts of this whole thing is just that they couldn't really find anything. It was kind of the perfect scenario to get away with a crime like this because there there was no body, so that's missing. Like I said, it's like a secl- it's a very secluded pond. It's a lot of woods. So it's would be hard to have witnesses see something if he was in the thick woods. And I think it was just very disturbing that they I mean, like we said her um first aid kit was open. So I know we said this, but it it's what a lot of people have this theory. And I think we kind of agree, like this is probably the most probable case that somebody kind of just came up to her in that, like the early morning before anyone arrived. And he was like, Oh, I'm, I'm her or whatever. He said something that he needed help. So she would probably reach down, look inside this kit, and then he would just take her and bring her somewhere. So I don't know. It's, it's got to be incredibly scary for a family to go through this and then not have any idea who would do it and i'm guessing also for everyone else in the surrounding town i mean this was a really small town like we said basically they're kind of left with nothing they didn't find anything in the local woods they didn't find anything in the pond so they had nothing to hold on to that is until almost three years later in the fall of 2002 a hunter noticed a blue bathing suit in the woods on whiskey hill in palmer which is one of the nearby towns or surrounding towns uh the bathing suit was the same color as the bathing suit that molly was wearing on the day she went missing the hunter didn't really think anything of it at the time in may of the next year the hunter mentioned what he had seen to a man named tim mcwigan who contacted contacted the police DNA evidence from the suit was tested to determine if it actually belonged to Molly. Results came back with a positive match to Molly. Immediately, a very intense search was conducted in the area that they found the bathing suit. The area was a really heavy, uh, heavily wooded area, pretty much known only to the local hunters, which might have explained why it hadn't been discovered previously. Detectives broke a map of the area into quadrants, hoping to complete the search in a very thorough way. Three weeks after the search began, police found a human bone in the woods. Over the next week, police recover 26 more bones. Six days after that first bone was discovered, on June 9, 2003, DNA testing confirmed that the remains were that of Molly Bish. The Bish family buried their daughter's remains on August 2, 2003, the day that would have been her 20th birthday which is uh, so sad. And also, June 9th is your birthday. It is. So I'm so sorry to put a damper on it, but uh, (laughs) that's the way the cookie crumbles. After the discovery of Molly's body, the case sat cold for a few more years. In October of 2005, a man from Waterbury, Connecticut, was arrested on a charge of attempted kidnapping in Saratoga Springs, New York. This did attract the attention of police involved in Molly Bish's case. Investigators checked if the roofing and siding salesman was in Western Mass on the day of Molly's disappearance. However, they found no evidence of the man being in the area at the time, so he was eliminated as a suspect. In 2008, 
a new suspect was investigated. About 1,300 miles south of Mass, a, mo- a man named Rodney Stanger was convicted of killing his girlfriend in Florida. The man had, had been a resident of Southbridge, Mass, but he moved to Florida a year after the Bish murder. Massachusetts authorities were informed of Stanger's conviction and soon learned that he had had access to a white car, similar to the one seen the day before Molly's disappearance. He also looked strikingly similar to the sketch artist's rendition of the suspicious man by the pond. At the same time, police were also questioning Stanger about a separate incident, the 1993 murder of Holly Perenin in Southbridge, Mass. It was discovered that Molly and Holly actually had a kind of strange connection. At the time of Holly's death in 1993, her and Molly were the exact same age. They were both blonde and they both had blue eyes. Apparently, following Holly's death, Molly had actually written a letter to Holly's parents with her condolences and words of hope. Given the similarity in the girls' appearance, the closeness and location of the two cases, and the similar circumstances under which they were both abducted, there was speculation at first that these two cases were related. Although an oddly chilling connection, there was no evidence to link Stanger to the crime. He was never charged in the Molly case, but is still referred to as a person of interest. Stanger did plead guilty to the murder of his girlfriend and is currently serving a 25-year sentence. In 2012, forensic evidence led authorities to a man named David Pouliot, who died in 2003 as a person of interest in the Holly case. Once more, in 2011, another man was named a suspect in the Molly Bish case, Gerald Bastatoni. <laughs> Gerald Bastatoni. <laughs> I didn't even add a letter to that. Well, you stuttered. Just say, say it slowly. Like, read it. Like slowly how it looks. Gerald Battisoni. <laughs> that was right. No, you said Battisoni. Oh. Gerald Battistoni. <laughs> that was right. It was just really funny. Fuck you. I'll try one more time. Once more, in 2011, another man was named a suspect in the Molly Bish case. Gerald Battistoni, a confidential informant for the Eastern Hampton County Narcotic Task Force with a criminal record was named a suspect by private Massachusetts detective Dan Malley. Bastistoni had previously <laughs> served time in prison for repeatedly raping a teenage girl in the early 90s. At one point, a local newspaper did identify him as a potential suspect in the Molly and Holly cases, which led Bastistoni to attempt suicide. He had been in the area when Molly's body was found. And resembles- Can I just break in? I just want to let everyone know that you keep avoiding saying his name because you can't say it. And I know this isn't a funny subject, but it's the funniest thing to me. <laughs> it's a bad Estony, but you keep saying Bassistoni or something. I, so, but yeah. I just needed to say that before I like. I don't even have an excuse for it. I just, I just really it's have okay. trouble the with words. Jump out at you and. And people have problems with words sometimes. I don't know. It's just names. I suck at names. Batatoni. Without actually even looking at the letters. <laughs> I think I just skip it. Yeah. Well, anyway, anyway, he was in the area and he where Molly's body was found and resembled a composite sketch of a man that Maggie had described from the parking lot. The Massachusetts State Police sent a DNA sketch of Batatoni. To Texas for testing, but apparently results did not yield any positive connection. So he wasn't arrested for the involvement in the case. Gerald Bastoni died in November 2014 at the Lemuel Chatak Hospital in Jamaica Plain. If he wasn't the suspect, he could have been connected or had information. So a lot of people think that he at least knew of the case or at least knew some facts. And they felt that him passing away uh left even more holes in the story that 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 couldn't be filled mm-hmm. i mean he has a criminal record so he probably knows people he probably knows other criminals i mean he was also a literal informant for like the narcotic task force so he probably had a lot of information new people in the area so i think they were saying it's kind of a it might be a big hole in the case now that he's not here to talk about it And as of this day in 2019, there have been zero arrests made in the murder of Molly Bish. However, the Bish family remains determined and the case has not died out. 
Last year, detectives at the Worcester County District Attorney said that they're testing more evidence found from the pond and woods area where Molly's body was found. They're just testing it against uh, DNA samples of some people that they have, and they're asking others to just voluntarily give samples. The DNA testing is being handled at labs in Massachusetts and out of state. The Worcester County District Attorney, Joseph Early, had this to say about the new testing, quote, As you know, 24 to 48 hours is ideal when you like to solve a homicide, and time can actually be your enemy after that. But after 18 years, time can be your friend because relationships have evolved, people have died, relationships are over, and sometimes people's consciences have come forward to talk a little bit about more than they would have in the past, end quote. Which I totally get that. I do, especially if you're giving DNA and say it was your <laughs> uncle who did it or something and you would never have known that, mm-hmm. but you have familiar matches. Yeah, between getting DNA from a lot, as many people as you can and maybe trying to find family members. But then also, like, it's true, after so much time, if you can't get it right away, which would be the best thing, it's like after so much time, you know, maybe the girlfriend of the guy that did this knew at the time or had a like a thought, but she's like, well, it's my boyfriend, I'm not going to say anything. But then like 18 years later, what if they're not together and she yep. decides I'm going to tell someone now, something like that, or, or someone dies and someone else comes forward and says, hey, I know that they did something. Um, I think that happens a lot in cold cases. It's just like after time, someone finally decides to talk. So I think that that's what Joseph really is talking about and they're kind of hoping that something like that would happen in this case. Yeah, which led them in October of 2018. The investigators actually went back to the former campground in West Brookfield with ground penetrating radar. Uh, The device, the ground penetrating radar, sends signals into the ground that a computer reads, essentially allowing you to see underground. So the Bish family hired a private investigator. Um, her name was Sarah Stein, and she said, quote, We did find very compelling areas of interest and items on the surface of the ground that led us to something that is buried, end quote. Apparently, a tip revealed that a similar white car to the one believed to be owned by the person of interest in the case could be buried underground at the former campground. While nothing came of the initial radar session in October, Investigators said they'd be back out at the campground in the future to use the device again. Mm-hmm. That's the last bit of information about that I could find. I think the last time that they did it or talked about it was in late last year, and I haven't found anything since then. But I think I think there will be soon. I think especially now that the weather is getting warmer and they can actually start to like dig up ground and stuff, I'm thinking that more is going to happen. So, I mean, if it does, we'll have to stay on the the case stay on the case yeah it feels like they've made a lot of progress since 2000 just i mean in 18 years y- yes and no i mean there's a little bit it is which is sad but i think um, but the fact that they're still getting tips and stuff things mm-hmm. are just coming out over time yeah which i mean the tip about the buried car itself it came from like a tip campaign that the bish family held in 2014 it's called just one piece So, I mean, they've remained, it's known that the Bish family has remained very strong throughout this whole time. So I think that's one of the reasons that this case isn't just dead. I mean, there's still, there are still investigators solely on this case looking for evidence and doing all that they can. In 2004, Maggie and John Bish founded the Molly Bish Center and Foundation in collaboration with Anna Maria College. Uh, which is it's basically dedicated to improving safety awareness. They do a lot of work with creating and distributing missing children pamphlets, including taking photos and videos of children to be kept on record should the day come when that kind of evidence is needed. So I, it's funny because I was hearing about this and I was thinking about my childhood because me and my sister did this kind of thing when we were little. I don't know where it was. I don't know if it was like some kind of town run event or whatever, but my parents would take, they would have these tents up somewhere and my parents would take us and basically these people like took photos of us and they would also videotape us. They would ask us a couple questions and videotape us, um, I guess, just so that they had a current picture of us and also knew what we talked like, what we sounded like. I I specifically remember one of them, like they would just ask you like, like what's your name? Uh, who Do you have any siblings? Stuff like that. And they one of the things they asked me was, what, what's my favorite kind of ice cream? 
I was like, chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I like chocolate. Yeah, literally. <laughs> Which I don't even like chocolate ice cream. I think I just got nervous and said that, but whatever. So they made these videos and we were able to take them home. And we did it a few times. Like, so maybe when I was like, like each year. four, five, six or something like yeah, that. Yeah, probably each year though, like festival or town had a yeah, fair or Yeah, whatever this thing was. Um, so like for us, it just went in our home video collection. And whenever we would like, go watch home videos these would we would watch these videos of me and my sister being interviewed and me being like chocolate yeah and it would just be funny next year it'd be like vanilla yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't know why i'm giving you such a deep <laughs> child accent I, know. I was too i don't know why <laughs> but like in reality which i didn't realize at the time and like didn't really even think about again until now those were things that they had set up that it was very similar to stuff that the bish foundation did where they wanted current pictures and videos of children to just be on hand like god forbid you need them one day yeah so the copy would be given to the parents but then also it'd be on file somewhere yeah um in case you needed them did you ever do fingerprint fingerprints i think so i don't remember but yeah because that's we didn't do those with the videos or anything but i remember the police department or police county they came out and they did uh fingerprint printing with the ink and stuff. Yeah. And we just thought it was, like, super fun. Yeah. You didn't have to do classwork. So you're like, yeah. But they took a copy of it. And then, well, not only that, they have our fingerprints in their in their data system for, you know, if we grow up to be felons as well. But mm-hmm. also if we go missing. Yeah. And then our parents got the, the copy, too. Yeah. So it's actually, now that I think about it, it's good, I think. I think it is good. Yeah. It's just kind of creepy that they do all of that and you have absolutely no idea until you're older. I know. Because it's not like you're the one saying it's okay. Obviously, your your parents parents are. Which they should be because, yeah, it could be really helpful. But I know. I agree. Because I remember watching those videos when I was a little bit older and being like, Mom, where did you send it? Why are these (laughs) random people taking my picture? Like, it's kind of weird. But, I mean, it's for things like this. I'd be interested in watching one of your videos. I could probably dig it up. Yes. Home video. Home video movie night. Oh, God. So, yeah, the whole Bish family kind of got involved in this case because obviously it was close to their heart. Uh, Molly's sister, Heather Bish, is now a missing child advocate. Every May for the last 18 years, the family has held what they call Missing Children's Day to bring awareness to the cause. Specifically, they are advocates for better police training when it comes to missing children. According to Heather, police didn't know what to do, really, when they first discovered that Molly was gone. They, Like we said, they kind of just assumed she was off. They didn't really know. They didn't think it was a big deal. Um, waiting over three hours to inform Maggie. But now we know that we know how important it is to have the necessary resources available immediately when it's discovered that a child isn't where they should be. The Molly Bish Foundation even helped in the process of bringing the Amber Alert to Massachusetts, which is something that did not exist when Molly went missing back in 2000. In 2010, the Bish family held a 10th anniversary vigil for Molly at Cummins Pond. To this day, they remain, quote, cautiously hopeful that justice will prevail and investigators will discover who is responsible for the death of their daughter. I have hope that something this year or in the following year They'll find something. And I think if they uncover a, a car, if the car really was buried or tucked away, yeah, it's that's still, still out there, there's going to be so much evidence. Right. That's the that's owner of the, the car, who's related, who they could have given the car out to. I mean, yeah, they can pull up all the records on the car, but then also there could, there could oh, be evidence inside I mean, the car. if this car is buried, there's has to be evidence because why else would you bury it? Like, that's also, a huge undertaking. Yeah. yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, I, how do you do that without going unnoticed? Yeah, and that seemed more like a two three person job to me it doesn't seem like a one person job i agree i planted a tree and it took me all day (laughs) like (laughs) no i agree i know that's why i mean if it's true i don't think they know yet yeah Um, and so the campground so the current owner of the campground isn't the owner back then right property right but if it's a campground aren't there gonna be people around like right do all your neighbors help you just dig a hole and you tell them it's for something else or well that's what i'm saying like if it is someone has to know something someone has to know something which is the whole goes back to saying Mm -hmm. like it's been almost 20 years if someone is alive that knows something like you just have to hope that it comes their guilty conscience gets the best of them 
or yes, yeah, some somehow they let it slip. I don't know. But or even a kid, like a kid's memory, or if you remember, just like your parents or or your family friend at a campground digging a hole. Right. Which at the time you might you. not think anything of, but yeah. if you hear about this case, which mm-hmm. like I didn't know anything about this case before, I had never heard of this, and I was a lifeguard, so I feel like they would have maybe warned yeah, us about think, it. Yeah, they never. You never heard about? No. I mean, I guess we're kind of far removed. Maybe, but. Yeah, you would you would think being a lifeguard, you would know the story. Yeah. I was thinking of you like the whole time, like reading about this Aww. and everything. So I was like, oh, I could just picture a little Kirby, little sixteen year old. Actually, were you? Did you start? Were you? At 16? I started when I was sixteen. Yeah, I've never had another job. You started at sixteen, mm-hmm. so like it was same exact thing. She started at sixteen. Same exact thing. Yep, that's crazy. It is crazy. So I did it at um, an outdoor pool, an indoor pool, a campground pool, and a beach and a pond. So I've kind of covered, you know, all of the. Yeah, your odds were way up there. You made oh, it out. But one of them that reminded me of this one is I lifeguarded at a pond that was pretty rowdy because it it isn't a private pond, but it's a private area, which doesn't make sense to me. So they charge like $20 a ticket. So the people come in and they all come from the city and they make a trip out of it. Like they leave their house at five and they're knocking yeah. at the door at like, I think we opened at like nine o'clock so we had to get there at 8 30 to set up or something but it was heavily wooded it was so wooded and there was only a path that went around the pond and everything else was just trees and that's all I could think of this entire time was like this is the perfect place to someone to kidnap you yeah I don't know were you so you thought that but were you ever actually nervous at any point I don't think so like the people that came usually came with kids I, the most scary thing was honestly hypodermic needles left on the ground. Oh, yeah. So like every day you combed the beach for hypodermic needles mm-hmm. and then um, trash as well. And then the only crazy thing that happened at the pond when I lifeguarded there was I wasn't there that day, but there was like a stabbing. <laughs> one of the lifeguards was trying to get the people to like settle down. They were being too rowdy or something. And one of the guys just like whips open a pocket knife and like tried to stab him. The lifeguard? Yeah. And the oh lifeguard was God. like, whoa, whoa. Like, I'm just here to like, <laughs> keep the peace. Like, <laughs> but other than that, sometimes we got food. Like people would grill us hot dogs and stuff, but it was weird. So when... Like, were there any, like, regulate – because, I mean, this was 2000, and this girl was only 16, and from what everything I read, it seems like she was the only one on duty. She was alone. Her boss was somewhere, but not, like, out there at the oh, time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. Well, I worked for the town, so the town's rules were a little bit different. Uh, private lifeguarding was completely different ballpark mm. because in the town you had to have a buddy. There was it was unacceptable. Like if there's only one lifeguard, like even if you were the first one to show up, you couldn't go like on the beach or do anything or start anything until mm-hmm. another one came on. I mean, you could like wander around, but like you weren't supposed to start until another lifeguard got there. Mm-hmm. And so the pond one for the town there were at least six lifeguards on at all times wow yeah so it wasn't even like just two people Mm -hmm. and then I worked at a smaller pond one that was um like a day camp kind of thing too and that one there were only two lifeguards okay so at any given point I mean technically there could be one because if I had to go to the bathroom you know Mm. there'd only be one lifeguard on duty Mm -hmm. but it's not like I was in the bathroom for like five hours right but the private one Oh my God, there's so, I can't believe I lifeguard at so many places. But the private campground one that I worked at, I was the only lifeguard on duty at all times. So if I went to the bathroom, I went to the bathroom. If I took a break, I took a break. Like, And that was a pool or a It was a, a pool. Okay, yeah, it was, it was an indoor pool. pool yeah, and it was like that. literally three feet. Didn't you get free ice cream there? Um, Sometimes they gave it to me. Oh my God. I remember that. I was always jealous of that. The ice cream part? You worked at an ice cream oh, shop yeah, though. Oh yeah, I did. I always got free ice cream. I forgot about that. Yeah. They I felt so abandoned there though. I literally worked nine to five and it didn't go over because the pool closed at five, I guess. Oh no. This was the weird part. So I worked nine to five, but the pool was open until like eight o'clock. And just no one was on duty. But I just left nine to five. Like Hmm, that is weird. It must have like signs or something that say like no life. Yeah, there was signs like everywhere that said swim at your own risk. Mm -hmm. And then people would always be almost affronted that I was there like they'd walk in read the sign and they'd be like why are you on duty and I was like well I can leave if you want me to like it's no big deal to me yeah but um that one was pretty crazy too because most of the time like people when they go to pools they just want to get drunk Mm. so it's just like a bunch of drunk people with kids oh god at the pool yeah that's never fun 
no. But yeah, probably the like craziest ones was at the beach. That's where like all the stories happen. Yeah, that seems to be the scariest one too because it's not like an indoor place where there's security yeah. cameras. It's just the woods. Yeah. And you you had the same thing, right? Like a they call it a two-way radio, like a, a walkie-talkie thing. Mm-hmm. But ours wasn't for the police. Ours just went to like each other. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a long distance one. It was literally like five feet. <laughs> oh, that's not good. <laughs> Like, it wasn't very long. I mean, you could radio to, like, the last lifeguard. Mm -hmm. It was, like, in a row. And then we'd just take turns. And one of the ponds was a dual side. So, like, there'd be four on this side and then two on this side. And it was almost like punishment if you got sent to, like, the small part. (laughs) (laughs) Because you had to get sent with just one other person. Oh, God. What if you didn't like them? Oh, that's the thing. That's why it was always punishment. Because they always Uh, sent, like, the person they didn't like. And then someone had to, like, step up and take one for the team to, like, go to the other side. that sounds terrible. I only had to do it once. And, oh, oh, I forgot about this. So I went the one day I did it because I was just like, all right, guys, like, fuck it. I'll just go over there. Like, just send me and, you know, no-named guy over there. Like, we'll (laughs) just do it. And they were like, oh, thanks. Are you sure? Are you sure? And everyone played the, like, oh, I'll go if you don't want to. Yeah. And I was like, you know what, guys? I'll just go. So we went and it's like the whole day you sit over there from like nine to five by yourself with this person and you have to like Mm. talk to them. And he pulled out a gun from his backpack and I literally was just just like, what what are you doing? There's kids around. Like we're literally guarding families right now. Like, why are you showing me this? He was in um, like the military or something like he was training for it. And he was one of those like super hardos. He was like, well... (laughs) You know, things get crazy down oh here. There was God. a stabbing. He's like, I just want to make sure, like, you I'm protected. You can't just... Uh, yeah. And I was like, um, okay, so this is the last time I ever come to this side oh with no. you. <laughs> yeah, literally. That's why no one wanted to go over there. I have no idea. But I also... Probably bad on me. I never told, like, my manager or anything about it. And mm-hmm. I never told any of the other lifeguards. I was just, like, so scared. I was like, okay, bye. No, that's so scary. That's but not okay. Like you said, there's crazy. children everywhere. You can't... Yeah. Jesus. I just don't even know. And... Yeah. I just kept trying to be like, all right, so do you mind if I uh, go for a run right now? Or like, do you mind? Because you could also do that too. So like, I guess in that sense too, there could be one lifeguard on because you Mm -hmm. could say like, hey, I'm going to go take my break and I want to go for a run. Yeah. So, but just the fact that there's a rule everywhere now that you need, you can't just have one. Like, yeah, I guess. Yeah. I mean, back in 2000, everything was different. Oh, I told you about that time, though, that uh, we had parking attendants for this one pond to get in and pay. And they put me, yeah. like, in the back from 9 to 5 in, like, a wooded area. And only two people checked on me the whole day. Yeah. So that was the only time that I was, like, truly alone that I felt like I was alone. I had a walkie-talkie, but still. But it's the same thing. If somebody grabs you out of nowhere yeah. and you're unsuspicious, you're not going to be, like, you yeah, can't people, get it. A couple people drove by that were, like, patrons or whatever, and I just collected their money and mm-hmm. tucked it in my... Probably no one would really uh, try to get my money because I didn't really have that much. But, yeah. But it might not be the money that they're after. I would just give them my 40 bucks. I'd just be like, two people came in, take the 40. So, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. I would not want to lifeguard again. No. No, I don't want to do it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like lifeguarding is very much like a Either you're 16 to 20 or you're, like, a weird old man that lifeguards with the kids. Mm, that is so beyond true. Right? So it's, like, <laughs> you like, probably shouldn't lifeguard. Accurate. Yeah. That is so – like, I have so <laughs> many weird-ass stories from just lifeguarding alone. And you mm-hmm. wouldn't think it because you literally don't talk to anybody. But it definitely was a comfy-ass job when I was 16. Like, 16 to 18. It was, yeah. like, the job to have. Yeah. You're making, like, above minimum wage. You're swimming in your spare time. You get to run in your spare time. And then, like, once you hit 18, you're like, all right, this is it. Like, I yeah, can't do this for another this. summer. No, I remember, like, all the cool kids were lifeguards. Peace out. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. That's going to put you on, like, a high horse. Yeah, like an ego trip. Yeah. Whew. But, I mean, yeah, like you said, it's it's a big job for someone that's turning, like, 16 because it's a huge responsibility. Yeah, honestly, I think it's like too much of a job I would prefer pools just put out like signs that say swim at your own risk because I I mean are you you really put your life in a 16 year old hand yeah, like exactly no I, I know they're like weird old people but like I would trust an older person over like 20 and although above you have to over. be fit not necessarily uh, they were some 
not fit lifeguards. <laughs> I don't want to say anything like derogatory towards them, but they were not fit. Yeah. But but, would, but I wouldn't trust someone that I was like, oh, I don't know if they're fit. So. Okay, but also, like, think of a 16-year-old. Like, I was – when I was 16, I weighed, like, what, 125, 30 pounds, right? And then some of the people at the pool probably were close to, like, 300 pounds. And I know water yeah. makes you lighter, but there was, like, some activities that you have to do to pull someone out of a pool or even from the pond or beach. I did not – and I'm a, I'm a good swimmer. Like, I swam in high school, but I don't have faith that I could pull somebody – of that stature out of the pool. Yeah. I just don't. But, I mean, there does need to be someone, like, avidly watching. And even if you can't save them, you need to, like, tell people. So, I, that's the first I step, guess. I guess, is that yeah, there's the someone just to recognize step. if someone's in trouble so you can let other people know and then try to save them. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a lifeguard. <laughs> I'm no lifeguard. I'm not a lifeguard. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. Ugh, it's, it's tough. Yeah. They did close a lot of the lifeguard positions and, like... 2010-ish, I guess, like across the state just because of funding. They deemed it not a state fund, I guess. Mm -hmm. So you just have to do it at your own risk, basically. Right. Yeah. Well, with that background in lifeguarding, <laughs> that's why I kept thinking of you this whole time. And I was like, oh. But I mean, like I said, that's back in 2000. So things were a lot different, but. Yeah, now everyone has phones when they lifeguard, and it's like, are you watching me? Or are you yeah. just, like, texting? Yeah, that's the thing. Um, I think that's another thing that probably would have definitely helped. Oh, for sure. Like, obviously, but, you know, she's probably, if it was today, she'd probably be, like, Snapchatting people while she's yeah. waiting for these kids to get there, or, like, whatever, so her friends would know if she, like, was okay and just walked mm -hmm. off her on her own, or if somebody took her, but... So was she teach? She was the one teaching lessons. She was the swim instructor. She was swim instructor I, slash lifeguard. I guess I, I wasn't really clear on that. If yeah, she no, was so just nothing ever like clarified that, or if there was instructor, or if like the parents were just supposed to instruct their kids. I'm not too sure. Yeah, but. because I remember one parent just like took the whistle up and was like, "All right, yeah, she's I'm like, the I guess I'll just be the lifeguard." I think I, they were they. It came across as sounding like they were even mad, like, because they thought this girl just didn't show up and she yeah. was an irresponsible teenager, 16-year-old. Mm -hmm. They're like, why is this girl not here? So they were, like, mad, and they told their boss, and her boss was mad. I think he also had the same assumption. He was just like, oh, this girl is not responsible. She was calling the police, like, Ugh. But then, obviously, they found out that yeah, it wasn't her own doing. She wasn't just... And it's in my opinion, anyway, that I... I think the most likely theory is what they kind of believe where she somebody came up to her saying that they needed help and I she think was so. in her kit or whatever and they stole yeah. her. And I do think that probably it does involve the white car and the man that I Maggie think so. saw. I because, think the car's related. I mean, even though there's nothing there's no like hard evidence, I think it it is like a mother's intuition is something that you can't just like put aside. Like that shit is strong. Yeah. So when she says that, like, she wholeheartedly believes that that was the guy, I'm like, I kind of, I don't know. There's definitely something to that. And I think that even though they haven't found evidence about um, or linking the Stanger guy, Stanger, whatever, to her, um, I don't know. I think he's probably the most likely. Really? Yeah. And I think that they think that too, investigators, but they just, they, they can't, can on. right, which is why it, this is so important if the car is there, buried, yeah. and they can find evidence. I mean, he's still alive, so they have his prints and DNA, so if they can link him to it, I mean, that would be amazing. Yeah. It's either he pulled the stunt when she opened the first aid kit, the while she's bending over looking, grabs her, or... They did say, like, the last trace of, like, her when they went and found it was in the cemetery through the path, like, from the pond. Oh, up yeah, to that the wasn't cemetery. there a dog or something? Like yeah, they, they like, searched it. Um, so my other guess would be, like, he knew he wouldn't, he wasn't strong enough to get her from there. And so he asked, he's like, oh, my son just tripped and fell. We need a Band-Aid up here. We need some gauze or something. Or So I would be interested to know if there's anything missing from the first aid kit. But I think he might have pulled the come help, like someone else needs help, like come, come. And mm -hmm. then she followed him up to the cemetery and then he, there still was someone though, waiting. Even with that, I still think it's really weird that she didn't have her shoes. That, like, I know she was in a hurry, but it's the weird. shoes were right there and it's got to be uncomfortable. And 
I don't think it's super weird if that happened just because it would be an emergency and it'd be like super rushed that she wouldn't even think to like slide the sandals back on. Yeah, maybe. And then they were also saying like the kit was still there. So there's like got to be fingerprints on it. But because this wasn't an obvious murder case right away, it was just a girl missing. There was so many people Mm -hmm. in the area. There were so many people looking through the kit. That's um, true, opening yeah. it and closing it so there was uh fingerprints of like investigators other people that worked there her family there were footprints everywhere i mean it's sand yeah. you can't yeah you can't recover a footprint that you're gonna walk over so it was really hard to get like a sense of the scene after everyone had trampled over it definitely yeah so, yeah, yeah it was like what three hours later <laughs> like yeah yeah and i mean all those kids were there with their parents like it, it wasn't just a yeah, that's crazy. It's a scene that they could recover something from, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think we just have to hope that with time. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Again, this is another one of those cases that we we follow. And yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to Google for updates like every few weeks now. Yeah, it should be coming up close. Yeah, we'll let you guys know. We'll keep you guys informed. Okay, quick plug. Uh, follow on Instagram and Facebook, Killer Babes Podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Killer Babes Pod. And at any time, you can email us, killerbabespodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys. A lot of you have reached out. Uh, it means a lot. So thank you very much. And thank you to our new listeners if you're just coming in. Yeah, yeah that's all I have. welcome. But I will say, you guys need to step up your game in sending us your hometown stories. Ooh, yeah. I mean, a couple of you have told me them, but if you're from New England, please, please, we want to know those little stories that you don't, like, read about or or hear about besides, like, just your family knows about it. So, um, yeah, feel free to email or even just, like, DM us on Instagram or whatever. Yeah, DM us. Slide into our DMs. All right, cool. All right, with that, I want to go drink some beer. Yeah, we're going to go check out some places in <laughs> maybe Providence, maybe Massachusetts. We don't know. Maybe yeah. Connecticut, wherever the road takes us. But okay. you know it'll be entwined in one of our next upcoming videos. Yeah, I'm sure Podcast. you'll hear about it. Not videos. Podcast. Yeah. 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 You I always videos. say film, too. You're like, time to go film. I'm like, we're not filming. We're... I don't know. You say that. Do I? Yeah. Oh, no, I'm going to be so conscious of that. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for hanging with us. Yep. Hope you enjoyed the story. And uh, we'll see you next week. Peace out. Bye.